time to make excuses, bro. We steady making moves. And I run the game, even when they bend the rules. I pay very close attention. After that, I pay my dues. And I excuse me, may I be excused? Cause I gave this shit my all. Ain't got nothing left to lose. Hello and welcome to episode 926 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined on the phone today by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. We are also joined by Ben Carsley, who is a writer for Baseball Prospectus, managing editor of Baseball Prospectus Boston, and that potentially tips you off to what we're talking about today, namely the Red Sox. Hello, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me on again. Happy to. We'll have you on every time Dave Dombrowski makes a trade, so stay by your phone for the next 10 days or so. So Dave Dombrowski has been busy. The most recent trade that went down yesterday, Red Sox acquired Drew Pomeranz and traded away. Anderson Espinoza to the Padres. He was ranked in BP's recent top 50 at number 24, the number five pitching prospect, the Red Sox top pitching prospect and fourth overall prospect. So tell us, I guess, first about how Drew Pomeranz became a player that we would do part of a podcast episode about and then also about what the Red Sox gave up here. Well, Pomeranz is attractive to the Red Sox solely because they have really failed at every single level to develop and retain any quality starting pitching. You know, I I wrote in the transaction analysis today that pretty much over the past decade, the only three starters the Red Sox have successfully developed are John Lester, Clay Buckles, and Justin Masterson, And and that's going back quite a few years now. So, uh, the reason Pomeranz is attractive, even though he is uh, probably not someone that we would have started the year guessing the Red Sox would go after, is because the other options the Red Sox have are are pretty terrible. Uh, Sean O'Sullivan is probably or was the Red Sox fourth starter before this trade was made, and it's 2016. So uh, I think that is probably the best way I can I can sum up why they would feel the need to go after someone like Pomeranz. Yeah. We actually got a question from a listener who wrote in, with the Red Sox dealing Espinosa, it got me wondering about the team's success over the last 30 years drafting and developing pitching talent, which is what you were just alluding to. Clemens and Lester is all I can think of. You mentioned a couple others, but since this spans different ownership groups, executives, etc., I was curious if there are larger factors at play that contribute to this. Minor league affiliates, geography, who knows? Why are they so consistently bad and some teams like the Mets so randomly good? Is it just random or do you attribute it to something the Red Sox have done badly? I think when it's this consistent, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it random anymore. You know, especially with this, this most current crop, you know, they had arms that people did think would at least be able to, to slot into the middle or the back of a rotation. It's, it's not as if they haven't had the sort of raw material to work with. You know, even heading into last year, this was a group that included Matt Barnes and Brandon Workman and Henry Owens and Brian Johnson. You know, maybe maybe no one thought there was a savior among that group, but those are all you know, fairly well-respected and well-established arms in the in the upper minors with a little bit of major league experience. You know, it wouldn't have been crazy to think that at least one of those four or five arms would be able to give the Red Sox 100 or 150 decent innings by, by this season. Uh, but it just hasn't happened. And, and I don't know if Dombrowski has come into this organization and 
has decided that there's something wrong and that, you know, this is not a good time to be grooming arms. Uh, you know, if that's the case, you can certainly understand why he'd be less hesitant to deal Espinoza. Or I don't know if it's just Dombrowski, uh, you know, hating all of your prospects, as he so famously does, and not really having a problem shipping off a guy that might not make the majors for the next three or four years. Uh, but I think there's definitely some sort of systematic failure uh, somewhere along the line in Boston, but pinpointing where that is is, is a lot more difficult. Well, everybody knows all Red Sox prospects are overhyped by the national media, too. So there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Xander and Mookie and Jackie look very, very overhyped right now. All hype. All hype. So you alluded to Dombrowski and the uh, tendency to trade prospects. And the Red Sox groomed you guys as uh, Red Sox followers to put a lot of uh, value in this kind of uh, player development machine that they were building uh, and to really see that as key to the long-term success of, you know, of the Red Sox at the top of the division. So is there any sort of sense of, of ominous dread, just knowing that there's somebody coming in who, while a very, you know, skilled GM and one who's uh, proven quite capable of building winners, uh, is just so sort of temperamentally different than what had been being sold to you for a decade? Or in some way, is it a relief to have a different, uh, somebody who's different than the propaganda? Or is it not something you spend much time thinking about because you've got uh, a life to live? Uh, Certainly not the last one. My life's not that exciting. It's both terrifying and exciting, I think is the best way to put it. And I think you hit the nail on the head in that it's really just a stark philosophical difference from Epstein and especially from Ben Charrington, who is sort of infamous for hugging his prospects and, and holding them all close. And I was really worried when Dombrowski was hired that he would do something like, you know, trade Bogarts or Betts. Uh, or Bradley at the time wouldn't have seemed as much a loss, but that's more what I was worried about. You know, trading this sort of next level of prospects can be tough to swallow, especially when you're getting back uh, an asset in Pomeranz who is intriguing, but not really a sure thing. Uh, so that can be a little scary. And, and, I mean, Red Sox Twitter and Red Sox fandom in general, I think, tends to go a little overboard when it comes to prospect hugging. I mean, there were people who were legitimately upset that Aaron Wilkerson was part of the Aaron Hill trade. And uh, I don't know if those people can be redeemed. But certainly it was, uh, you know, it took me back a little bit when I saw that Espinosa was the name going for Pomeranz, you know, sort of hoping it was maybe something more along the lines of a Michael Kopik or a Sam Travis or a Michael Chavez. Uh, good prospects, but guys who are not part of the, the so-called big four prospects in Boston right now. But at the same time, you know, they the Red Sox have the potential to be good. You know, they have the they have the best offense in baseball right now, and it's pretty reasonable for a GM to come in and say, I don't I don't want to waste a 900 run offense, and if I need to trade a really good prospect to get a pitcher who is going to spare me from Sean O'Sullivan or Rowenis Elias or Joe Kelly or this version of Clay Buckles. Uh, you can certainly understand why he would do that. And if the Red Sox win a lot of games in the second half of the season, I think you'll see the uh, the reactions start to shift a little bit. So uh, Espinoza is, uh, was the 24th-ranked prospect uh, on BP's midseason top 50. He's the fifth-ranked pitching prospect. He's also, as you noted, or you didn't really note, I'm noting, the fourth-best Red Sox prospect on the list. And I'm curious if that makes it any easier to trade a prospect of that caliber I mean, it's not as though it's not as though a team is ever like, well, we have all the pitching we need, and so we don't need any more pitching prospects. Uh, and you know, I mean, a, a baseball roster is 25 spots. They definitely would find room for four future superstars if they turned into those four. Uh, on the other hand, it's not as though the cupboard is super bare. So, do you um, do you find yourself viewing 
the loss of a player like Espinosa differently, knowing that he's fourth on the team's list? I think he was probably the easiest one to part with. I think either Espinosa or Rafael Devers uh, were are going to be a lot easier to part with than Yohan Moncada or Andrew Benintendi. You know, Moncada and Benintendi could probably not this year, but potentially make a little bit of an impact down the stretch. Or if, you know, not that, certainly next year. You know, I, I view them sort of as part of this good young core with Bogarts and Betts and Bradley and, and hopefully Blake Swihart if he can if he can get back on track. You know, I, I think they really have the chance to be core contributors to this next, you know, two to three years of what is hopefully a pretty good and young Red Sox team. Espinoza endeavors are, are going to take longer than that. Specifically Espinoza, who was is very advanced for his age. You know, it's impressive for an eighteen year old to be in Greenville, but he's still in Greenville. So we're still looking at probably three seasons before he makes an impact. And I think that time more than anything else is what let the Red Sox do this. Also, I think it's it's, it's pretty interesting that they were able to sign Jason Grom, their first rounder, uh, pretty much it seems like within a few hours of dealing Espinoza. And you do have to wonder if that, you know, made this a little bit easier for Dombrowski and, and, and Mike Hazen, knowing that they're getting a prospect who is probably viewed, you know, at least in the same stratosphere as Espinoza, if not exactly like him getting another probable top 50 back, another young pitcher that they can slot into the system. Of course, it would have been great to have both of them, but there were a lot of questions about whether or not Grom would sign. And I do wonder if that made it a little easier to part with Espinosa once the Red Sox realized they could get him in the system. What is the current conventional wisdom around Boston on the uh, Manuel Margot Javier Guerra trade? Well, it looks pretty bad right now because Kimbrell has been good and not dominant, and, and now he's hurt. Uh, I actually didn't mind the Red Sox including Guerra in that trade. I think they sort of sold high on Guerra as a prospect. You know, he was never really projected to hit for as much power as he showed last year. I, I still think of him sort of as a glove-first guy. And there's a lot of value in a young shortstop who's a glove-first guy. Don't get me wrong. You know, if he's a starter, uh, there, there's nothing to be ashamed for by that. But the only player I really minded losing in that trade was Manuel Margot. And uh, it does hurt a little bit because, you know, left field has not been a position of strength for the Red Sox this year. And if Margot were still in the organization, you could you could easily easily envision him getting a bulk of the playing time there right now. Uh, on the flip side, you know, if you, if you look at Dombrowski's Tigers teams, all those really good star-heavy Tigers teams, they were almost always done in by the bullpen. And, and you can sort of understand Dombrowski not wanting that to happen again deciding to pay a premium for one of the best three or four relievers in baseball and bringing him to Boston. Uh, I think that was also probably an attempt by Dombrowski to sort of paper over this starting rotation. And, you know, this it, it keeps coming back to this inability to develop starters. I think the plan was to put together a bit of a super bullpen with Kimbrell and Carson Smith and, and Uihara and sort of, you know, be able to come in and, and take a little pressure off of those number four and five starter spots. Obviously, that hasn't happened with Smith missing basically the entire year. And Kimbrell being okay, not not okay, he's been better okay, he's been good, but he hasn't been, you know, insanely dominant like we're used to him seeing. Uh, and sort of all these little fault lines started to show up at once. But I think uh, I think you can be justified in wanting the, the Kimbrell trade back or in still being okay with having made it. So Brett Sayre wrote about the history of top five pitching prospects or, or number five pitching prospects over the last 10 years that BP has been ranking prospects. So he just listed them. Tyler Glasnow was one. He obviously just made his major league debut. And then after that, it's Jonathan Gray, Jordano Ventura, Taiwan Walker, New AAA pitcher Shelby Miller, Matt Moore, Martin Perez, Tommy Hansen, Homer Bailey, Giovanni Gallardo. So those are all, 
you know, known names. There's no one there who completely flamed out and didn't even make the majors. They've all contributed a little bit, but none of them has really turned into anything that would make you super sad if Drew Pomeranz actually pitches well down the stretch and the Red Sox make the playoffs and he contributes in some way, which, you know, it's 10 data points. It doesn't tell us that much about Espinosa, but that's sort of the range of fifth best pitching prospect in baseball over the last 10 years. So how did Pomeranz go from a guy that you would, uh, or how did he become a guy who you would want to trade a prospect of this caliber for because he has lowered his deserved run average by a full run over his previous two seasons. He has already accumulated more value, according to Baseball Prospectus Warp, than he had in his entire career before this season. So what has he done differently, and what are the reasons to worry that he won't continue to do those things for Boston? Because it does seem like there are some reasons. Sure. So I think the three main reasons why he's he's been able to be this good this year are, uh, I believe Evan Drellis just published a pretty interesting piece about him in which Pomerantz talks about sort of rediscovering and refining his cutter, which he's used pretty effectively this year. It's sort of given him that third weapon that he can attack hitters with that he said he really had no feel for at all in Colorado. Um, so that's one reason. I think the second reason is just the very nature of going to a park like, like Petco. And I, I know he was an athletic last year, so he, a little bit removed from, you know, suffering through the effects of Coors Field. But I think, you know, obviously the more time he spends in super pitcher-friendly ballparks, the better he's going to look because he's not an extreme fly ball pitcher. You know, he, he misses a lot of bats and he generates plenty of grounders, but there are also a good amount of fly balls there too. And then finally, he's actually stayed on the mound, which is probably the biggest question mark that we should have with Pomerantz. Uh, he's already over 100 innings. This season, I believe the most he's ever thrown in in a year is something like 145, 147 back in 2012. So uh, that is the biggest question mark for me and the biggest reason to be skeptical. You know, this is a pitcher with uh, the frame and the, the size to log innings, and he has, he has pedigree. Uh, this isn't the first time he's been good. He was really good for a portion of his 2014 season. So I worry less about the quality of his performance than I do his ability to stay on the mound, especially given that he's already at about two-thirds of his of his heaviest workload to date. Well, I don't know what the success rate of Dave Dombrowski deals will turn out to be at the end of this season because a lot of them have already backfired or not worked out as well as he hoped when he made them. But it must be nice for a Red Sox fan to know that your GM is kind of in this mindset where if you need to fill a hole, he will absolutely do it. Like if if Kimbrell hurts himself, then you will get Brad Ziegler the same day. Like you don't even have to wait. Something will happen. So it must be refreshing. Must be nice to know that he is doing everything possible and that he's not going to be held back by any uh, fear of trading someone. No, I mean, I thought the Hill and Ziegler deals were, were great. I thought they were pretty savvy. They really didn't cost the Red Sox anything that they should miss too much in the long run. And, I mean, I think this is a team that should be going for it. I think we we sometimes tend to gloss over the fact that it's really hard to make the playoffs, and the Red Sox are in a position to do so. You know, this is the last year they'll have David Ortiz. It's going to be really difficult to replace his production next year. And, you know, this is, this isn't, this doesn't look like a one shot wonder team. And Pomeranz is under control through 2018, which I think is maybe the part of, of all of this that has gone underemphasized is, I mean, the, the starting pitching 
trade market appears to be pretty barren right now. I mean, they could have gone out and made an offer for Julio Tehran, but odds are that would have cost them even more than just Espinoza. There are, are pretty much no good starters on the free agent market next year, or at least no one who you would think of as a typical person who could pitch at or near the front of a rotation. Uh, and I think Dombrowski sees a little bit of a window you know, now through the next several years, and, and Pomeranz should be able to help them throughout that window. There, you know, there, there isn't really a lot of high minors pitching that the Red Sox can bank on. They should be hoping that Eduardo Rodriguez comes back and can contribute. You know, maybe Brian Johnson is somebody who could fill in and eat innings at the back of a rotation. But, you know, for all the prospects that the Red Sox have, there, there is not a Mancata or a Benintendi on the mound who is going to be able to contribute meaningfully to them in terms of starting over the next few years. And I think that is probably the number one reason Dombrowski did this. And I think that's why he paid certainly a premium for Pomeranz over trying to go after a guy like Rich Hill, who has his own problems staying on the mound and probably isn't someone who you can look at as uh, someone who's going to contribute meaningfully over the next several seasons. You know, Pomeranz represented that sort of weird middle of the market where even though it was a steep price, you didn't have to pay quite as much for him as you would a bona fide ace. And he is someone who has a few extra years of control. So it's been fun with Dombrowski. Uh, it's, it's certainly been a very stark departure from the Ben Charing era. Yeah, people were talking about Rich Hill to the Red Sox as almost a certainty. Is, are you ruling that out? Is there any possibility that they would add him also? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be surprised no matter what Dombrowski does at this point. I think it really depends on asking price. I can't really see him giving up another elite prospect for Hill nor do I think he should. That's when I might start uh, putting my prospect hugging pants on because Hill is pretty old and pretty injury prone. And while he's a lot of fun to watch and it would be a great story given that he's from here, that's not someone I'm looking up to give a long-term asset for, especially when you have shipped out prospects like Margot and Espinosa and, and Guerra. So I wouldn't rule it out, uh, especially if there is an injury in the rotation or if Stephen Wright starts falling back to earth or something like that. But I would be surprised to see Hill land in Boston at this point. Got to be careful what you say about Rich yeah, Hill. I, I do not like the way that this <laughs> conversation is going. Can we get a new guest? Um, the other thing, too, is that, I mean, I think if you ask the average person who follows baseball closely enough but, but you know, isn't a Red Sox uh, obsessive or anything like that, they would know that the Red Sox this year have astoundingly good hitters and pretty bad starting pitching. And so it you know, makes sense to go out and get Drew Pomeranz, and it makes sense to link them to Rich Hill. But at this point, I mean, their, their staff ERA as a, as a rotation is horrible. Um, but if you get to the postseason, Joe Kelly's not going to be starting any games. And, uh, you know, at this point, even Clay Buckholz isn't going to be starting any games, and that's a, a lot of the damage is going to be gone. So a rotation of Price, Pomeranz, Stephen Wright, and Rick Porcello seems to have all the holes filled, right? I mean, it doesn't, that, like, if you go into the postseason with that as your rotation, you know, the lead of your article is not the Red Sox are trying to overcome their, their mediocre rotation. That's like a legitimate rotation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think just needing to get that fourth reliable, reasonable major league starter is so important. You can sort of, it's a lot easier to paper over just the number five starter than it is both the four and five starters. And while it wouldn't surprise me if that if that quartet you just named is maybe the weakest or the second weakest starting group. If the Red Sox do make it to the playoffs, they're probably going to have the best or the second best offense. So they don't need to have the Mets rotation. It, it would be lovely to, they, but they don't need that. They just need a rotation that is going to keep them in games because more often than not, when you 
keep the opposition to three or four or even five runs with this Red Sox offense, they're at least going to be in the game. Uh, but even that low bar, you know, was was not being surpassed by Sean O'Sullivan and Rowan Elias and to this point Eduardo Rodriguez. So they don't really need they don't need all star Drew Pomeranz. They just need a Drew Pomeranz who's on the mound and who is better than sub replacement level. And obviously they won't be thrilled if that's all they get for Anderson Espinosa, but even that, even that low bar would be a pretty market improvement over what we've seen so far this year. It would also be a market improvement if David Price's ERA matched his deserved run average or his other fielding independent pitching marks. And he has the highest strikeout rate of his career, but he's also given up a bunch of homers. So is Price about to become the guy they signed or are you sort of resigned to not quite that level, David Price? That is tough. I think I... I think I believe his true talent level to be closer to his DRA than his ERA, but I, I don't know if I still really think he's a high twos, uh, very low threes DRA guy. Uh, he is striking a lot of people out, but he also has a tendency to leave some pretty hittable pitches in the middle of the plate this season. You know, a lot of the contact that is against him has been very, very hard. So I certainly think that his ERA, uh, you know, overstates the struggles that he's had this season, but he has not really looked like vintage David Price terribly often. So I'm optimistic that he will be a reasonable front of the rotation guy, but I'm not sure if I'm banking on a return to, you know, real vintage top five or six starter in the game, David Price. And since we have you, what is the current level of denial surrounding David Ortiz's retirement in the, the Red Sox fan base at large? Is there still hope and faith that he will realize that he's awesome and he's too awesome to retire? Uh, David Ortiz is not retiring. I don't know if you've heard that, but uh, the level of denial is that he's not retiring. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's frustrating. and It's not frustrating. It's a little sad until you hear him give his reasons, and he talks about how it hurts him to just walk in the morning and how much prep it takes him to get his feet ready to play every day. Uh, you know, once I read a few of those interviews and you hear him talk about it, it becomes a lot easier to accept that he is uh, that he's going to go out. But at least he's going out on his own terms. And this is uh, not to take a shot at the Yankees or anything, but it's just such a stark contrast from watching Jeter sort of limp out on the last legs of his career. You know, you don't you don't want to have to see that as a fan. So uh, from a purely fan perspective, this is really more than I could have hoped or asked for from David Ortiz and. Uh, it makes me glad that they went out and made this Pomeranz deal and all these small deals because I, I do want to see them make one more push with him in the middle of the lineup, especially while he is still completely justifying that middle of the lineup spot. All right. And in a recent episode, Sam and I, I think we, we talked about what percentage of the credit we would give to Ben Charrington for the team's performance. So, you know, at the end of the year or thus far this year, if you had to assign responsibilities to Dombrowski, to Charrington, to Epstein, I guess, even in some cases, where would you put those respective numbers? That is really tough. And uh, actually, I had a, a fairly similar conversation with my mom the other week because she was asking me whether, you know, Betts, Bogarts, and Bradley were, were Charrington guys or Epstein guys. And I think I erroneously at the time told her that they were Charrington drafts. And I know Charrington worked with Epstein, so you can't take all credit away from him. But I'm pretty sure all three of those players were signed or drafted still during the Theo regime. So 
I think that makes it a little harder to give a ton of credit to Sherrington. And, I, you know, I do like some of the things that Sherrington did. I mean, this, this next crop of, of upcoming talent, you know, Moncada is a Sherrington guy. Benintendi, I guess, I, I can't remember if he was still technically in power when they dropped to Benintendi. I believe he was. So I think you are going to see, you know, a lot of the positives from Ben Sherrington's tenure on this team moving forward. But he really, really did a poor job of building this pitching staff. You know, Rick Porcello has been pretty good this year, and that looks fine. But when you turn a free agent John Lester into just Rick Porcello, that's that's not what you're looking for. And who knows whether Lester would have stayed in Boston had negotiations gone differently, but he certainly appears to have bungled that. You know, the John Lackey trade was an unmitigated disaster. Uh, the pieces he got back in terms of Alan Webster and Ruby De La Rosa, they didn't pan out in Boston. So that is a very real and very legitimate criticism of, of Ben Charrington's time in Boston is that he was just unable to build a solid starting rotation. And I think, uh, I think that sin is, is something that you're still seeing being repaid today. I mean, that's why they made the Pomeranz trade. If you want to go even deeper, I think that's why they've messed a little bit with Blake Swihart's development and why they went with Christian Vasquez so heavily over Swihart is to just try to get anything, any extra strike or any mile they can out of this pitching staff. So, I think I would have to assign him the least credit out of the three, probably next, I don't know, probably next Dombrowski and then Theo. That's harder to answer because Price is Dombrowski's and Kimbrell and now and now Pomerand. So if I guess if I have to assign shares, oh, this is tough. You guys put me on the spot. I'll go 20 to, I'll go 30 to Charrington. Uh-oh, you're 30. in trouble. You gave too much. You gave too much to I gave, Charrington. If that's I gave it. too much to Charrington? Yeah, it, you just, it's like you you started the birthday sign and the uh, the H was too big, and you're not going to make it to the end of the page. <laughs> That's actually exactly what I feel like more so because I'm not I'm not confident that I can do this math in my head. So I will go. All right, I'll go 25 to Charrington. You've you've talked me into it. I will go 35 to Dombrowski, and I'll give the rest to Theo still. So that's 40 to Theo. Wow, that. That's a, I mean, Theo's been gone like six years. He has, but I mean, that core, the, the primary reason the Red Sox are good this year is because of Betts, Bogarts, Bradley, Pedroia, and Ortiz. And if all or most of those players are attributed to Epstein still, uh, I think that sends a, a pretty powerful message. He's, he's a pretty good GM. Uh, he, he turns out he's pretty good at what he does. So not only did he build the Cubs and get all the credit for building maybe the best team in the National League, but... He is also the most valuable GM on one of the American League's better teams this season. It's close. I mean, he only barely got the edge over Dunbrowski there, 35-40. Yeah. But uh, building that core is pretty impressive. I know the last time you had me on, we talked a lot about Betts and Bogarts, and it's it's easy to take that for granted now, but it's, it's really hard to get two of those guys at the same time. So, um, so Ben, Betts or Bogarts? <laughs> It's it's been what seventeen no uh, fifteen months since we had you on to talk about that and they've both changed their careers a lot although uh, bets less than Bogarts but still an open question isn't it I think it is I mean I have been I have never changed my answer from Bogarts and I think I I don't see any reason to right now um, I I think that Bogarts progression in the field to the point where he is a perfectly reasonable starting shortstop defensively. Uh, the fact that he is starting to marry his ability to hit to all fields with his natural power, getting more selective at the plate. He's a better base runner than I ever thought he would be. Uh, so I still give the edge to, to Bogarts. Uh, what's interesting is that if you just look at their slash lines, they sort of have the opposite projections of what you would have assumed when they were coming up. You know, Betts, is, uh, Betts is hitting for more power and, and, and striking out more, whereas 
Bogarts is reaching base more. Uh, those are sort of the exact opposite profiles they had coming up in the system. And I think that eventually Bogarts will will be able to hit for more power than Betts. But uh, still slant not to Bogarts. But Sam, what about you? Because I think I think you said Betts the first time around. I think we both yeah. took Betts. Yeah, I was I was pro Betts. I'm still pro Betts. I mean, Betts is my favorite player to watch. Uh, and that's really all I care about at this point because I'm not a I don't have I, the red if the Red Sox win or lose it, it doesn't matter to me so I just get to choose on aesthetics but I picked bets and uh, you know bets bets had the, the higher war last year he has the higher war this year uh, is there a reason to look at at something other than war to to settle this in your opinion I guess I'm still banking I still think Bogarts has the slightly higher upside because he can stay at shortstop and I you know whereas I don't know how much more power Betts is going to grow into. You know, Betts' power is based pretty much solely on wrist speed and bat speed and the ability to turn on the inside fastball. I still think Bogarts has another level of power within him. So I think that we could be looking at, at Bogarts as a potential, you know, 300 hitter with, with 25, 30 bombs while playing a, a slightly above average or perhaps just average defensive shortstop. And I would take that over the guy who plays a slightly or a well above average right field, I guess. So I don't, I don't think it's crazy to prefer bets, but I still see something a little bit rarer in both arts. Yeah. Offensively, they've been almost exactly the same this season. Not the same. They have different shaped slash lines, but value wise, they've been almost the same. So the defense is a slight difference, but they are about as close as a couple of players could be. And last time we talked, Betts was the guy who was really putting up the performance, and so it was kind of easier to choose him. But Bogarts hasn't made me switch, but he's made me less confident than I was last time. All right, so I think we are finished. You can read Ben's full trade analysis at Baseball Prospectus. I will link to it. You can also read him regularly there and also at Baseball Prospectus Boston, and you can find him on Twitter at Ben Carsley. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, guys. All right, so that is it for today. By the way, quick follow-up on our episode from a week ago, 921, when we talked to Jason Koskri about Shohei Otani, who has played like the best hitter and also the best pitcher in Japan this season. A listener named Josh let us know that Otani won the Home Run Derby last night. So add that to the list of his incredible accomplishments. It's on YouTube, so I will link to it in the podcast post at BP and also in the Facebook group in case you want to watch Otani hit some dingers. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's five listeners who have already pledged their support are Seth Rubin, James Stunden, Mark Haverlin, Allison Ferrezi, and Sam Golding. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to theonlyruleisithastowork.com for more information, and please leave us a review if you like the book at Amazon and Goodreads. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Reviews over there help us attract new listeners. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index at baseballreference.com by using the coupon code BP. And you can contact us by emailing us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or messaging us through Patreon. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will be back next week.